Welcome to Book Prison, where we give new looks to old books. I'm Grace. I'm Hannah. I'm Michelle. So happy Christmas. We're basically... Yeah, happy Christmas. Yeah, end of the year. Um, happy Christmas, or Merry Christmas, or... Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. <laughs> Are you guys feeling Christmassy? I don't feel Christmassy at all. It's so weird. And being in Florida, it's weird because it's not cold at all. And Michelle, you're in like freezing cold Colorado. Like surely it yeah. feels festive there. It's only it's only snowed here once, which is really unusual. Um, really? It's pretty chilly, but my I'm just at my daughter's house and there's... Um, she has the Christmas tree up and um, we're all going to do some, you know, stuff together as a family. And that feels a little Christmassy. But other than that, um, but Colorado, of course, is, is cold. So it's just not usually there's snow on the ground and at least intermittently. And there hasn't been really yet except once. So but I'm it school's out. Right. So that feels a little Christmassy. Hannah, when is school out? You're almost out of school. Yeah. This week is my last week before break. Uh, then it might be feel Christmassy because you'll be like, yay, Christmas break. <laughs> Holiday. And Grace, no Christmas break. <laughs> Don't have to deal with the kids. Um, I'm My last week of work is this week. So come Friday, I'm out of here on a holiday. But it is South Africa, so it is summer. So it's like beach holiday for Christmas. Really? Do you always do that? You're swimming in the ocean for Christmas Day. Yeah, well, I mean, where else do you go in South Africa? It's not cold anywhere over Christmas. It's <laughs> the middle of summer. So you've, you've got to have like a hot... Like people here... It Actually, I had a chat with my housemates this week about... Um, traditional Christmas things and you know how last year when we did A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens and we were talking about how it's like the Christmas feast was something that existed but he sort of popularized the Christmas feast and like in England obviously like every Christmas you have a roast dinner it's such a big deal you've got your turkey your Yorkshire puddings like you know your gravy all that kind of stuff and in South Africa everyone I know here and I didn't know this about these people I've known these people for like eight years they don't have a roast on Christmas they have like a barbecue and make salads and and make like some like sides like maybe some vegetables maybe some potatoes but like they don't do the same thing every year and when I told them that every single year we have a roast dinner they were like oh that's so boring and I was like what what are you what where's the tradition (laughs) that's not Christmas but then we started talking about you guys and you Americans and like, <laughs> what do you have on Christmas? Because you've just had Thanksgiving and don't you have like a big roast dinner on Thanksgiving? So then surely having one on Christmas, like it's not so special. So what do you eat on Christmas? No, we do it again. We, we basically do Thanksgiving again. <laughs> just a month later, yeah. Thanksgiving part two. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's different. It's a bit different. Sometimes yeah. we have. Um, well, you say, you say, Hannah, what do you have on Thanksgiving, and then what do you have on Christmas? Well, Thanksgiving, you have like turkey and potatoes and like veggies and stuffing. A roast dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Now at Christmas, usually, like my grandma does ham, but my dad doesn't like ham, so we do turkey again. <laughs> All that fun stuff. Sometimes, if my parents are feeling real fancy, they'll get like crab meat, and we'll go like. <laughs> Oh my gosh, no, that is very left wing. That is so out there. Sometimes we do, though. Like, that's pretty common. I feel like. Getting crab on Christmas. Yeah. 
No, no one, I'm sorry, everywhere in the world that tries to do Christmas does not do it right. The only place that can do a Western Christmas <laughs> right is the UK. Everywhere else, you have something wrong about it. Does not make sense to you me. You do, like, Thanksgiving part two, right, Michelle? Yeah, we actually have quite um, quite a tradition on Christmas. So, again, it, it is maybe roast because we've had turkey for Thanksgiving. So... Uh, it might be a roast dinner or it might be ham or it might be turkey again, depending on what everybody wants, because I'll ask. And then and I have a family of six. And so now they have some of them have significant others. And and so it is well, it is quite a big dinner. And so and we have like cranberry and we might have some like, um, you know, like a chocolate like log roll or some really nice dessert. Or, oh, OK, so do you guys you know? have Christmas pudding? Is that a thing that you do? I have made it before just because we have lived in the UK before. So I've made Christmas or figgy pudding just to have it because I think it's kind of yes. cool. Yeah. And so I would make something like that and mashed potatoes and the whole thing. Okay, because my housemates were mm-hmm. revolted by the idea of a wow. Christmas pudding. Well, one of them was. She was like, ew, like raisins and dates and stuff that you oh. heat up and she just couldn't she was like that sounds disgusting oh, I think and I was it's, like, good. No, it's really yummy or maybe we only think it's yummy because it, we associate it with Christmas now I don't know what came first the pudding or the Christmas so <laughs> yeah I don't know either and maybe Charles Dickens is the one who did that I have no he idea. has the answer did he invent the figgy pudding or the Christmas pudding I have no I idea I don't know I mean yeah Dickens is our Christmas king, so this month we are. Well, today we're going to be reading the Chimes by Charles Dickens, um, which also has a really weird full title. The full title of the book is "The Chimes: A Goblin Story of Some Bells That Rang an Old Year Out and a New Year In." <laughs> <laughs> like what? Wow! Classic Dickens. Can't say anything short. No, it has to be long-winded. So we're reading The Chimes today. Um, I've never read this before. You two haven't read it before either, have you? No. No. So I I would love to know what you thought, because for me, I kind of just thought it was like the remix of A Christmas Carol and like not as good. It was just like the same thing, but like the remix. (laughs) What did you guys think? That's funny. Yeah, it was very similar to A Christmas Carol. And also I did not think it was as good. It was also like really sad and depressing. Yes. So it's like, I don't, I can understand why this one isn't as popular. And it also doesn't happen on Christmas. It happens on New no, Year's. No, it's New Year's. So it's got nothing to do with Christmas. There's no like Christmas Carol that you've got the feasts and you've got religious connotations and the ghosts of Christmas, present, past, future. And it's all about like Christmas Day. This is, it doesn't even talk about Christmas, this book. Why is it a Christmas story? Because it's New Year's Eve and people just lump them together. I don't know. (laughs) I was in a bookstore. This is not what I was looking at, but I was in a bookstore this past um, month. And there's a book by Edith Wharton that said a Christmas ghost story. And I didn't buy it because I was already buying like 10 other books. But um, anyway, I looked at the inscription on the back and it said Edith Wharton is an American writer. Uh, right? Is that right? She's an American writer. Sorry, that sounds really stupid, but I think she's, you know, in the 1800s, um, or maybe early 1900s. Anyway, she, I read the book, and it, the, the inscription or something on the back, and it said that she uh, wrote the story as following the tradition that you would tell a ghost story every Christmas. And so I don't know if because Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol, that after that it became sort of a tradition to tell a ghost story on Christmas? Or did he write The Christmas Carol because it was a tradition 
to write or to tell a ghost story on Christmas, in which case then the chimes does fit in with that sort of tradition it, without, and the readers who are reading his, you know, weekly publication or whatever would know that and they'd be looking for the ghost story on Christmas. That's the only answer I can come up with. I don't know. But I do think it's something to investigate. That is yeah, cool. definitely. Because also like we talk about Dickens and Christmas as if he is the trailblazer of the modern Western Christmas that we know. And also like the kind of non religious Christmas. Like it's more about the morals of Christmas that he he he's sort of constructed in his writing. So I don't know. I don't know what came first, but I would like, I mean, I would assume that he did the ghost thing first, but I could be very much wrong. I have no idea. I just looked this up and on smithsonianmag.com, it says that Scrooge wasn't the first fictional character to see ghosts around Christmas time. The holiday ghost stories go much further back. Oh, well, there you go. But it doesn't say like how much further back. That's something okay, to investigate. That's interesting. But apparently the idea is like, families come together at Christmas so it makes sense that people are thinking about family members who have passed Mm, okay that makes sense but this story is is less about ghosts and more about goblins and bells but like are the goblins just ghosts like what how are they different yeah i think so because i was reading okay maybe we should do a plot summary but i was reading this book and when i got to the goblins i was picturing you know those stone trolls in frozen that's what i was picturing because they have green on them and they look like they're twinkly and they look very festive and christmasy and the more i read i was like no i don't think that these are actual goblins so i'm going to try to a plot summary Okay, so first of all, it's written the year after Christmas Carol, so there are some overlapping similarities that we'll discover. So the main character is Toby Veck, but he's known as Trotty Veck. He's just over 60, and he's known as Trotty because he's a porter, he's like a messenger, and he runs around town and he trots really fast, so he's called Trotty Veck. Um, On New Year's Eve, his daughter comes to him, he's very poor, also very, very impoverished man in London, classic Dickens. Um, New Year's Eve, his daughter comes to him and says, I'm going to marry my long-term fiancé. Trotty's not so stoked about it, but he pretends that he is. And they have a little celebration, which is ruined by um, a man called Alderman Cute with two other sort of rich gentlemen. They end up interrupting Trotty and Meg and Richard's sort of celebration and basically tell them that they like don't deserve a life because they're poor and just shit all over them for being poor people basically and make them feel really bad about themselves and Meg ends up leaving crying not actually wanting to marry Richard because they're sort of told that there's no prospects in their life because they're poor people and it's like it sucks so um anyway this guy cute tells Trotty to take a letter to um Sir Joseph Bowley who um, is a member of parliament he like donates to the poor but he's actually a shit person and he's really wealthy and Trotty goes to this amazing mansion and this guy um, Sir Joseph Bowley is having a conversation with his wife about another person who um, he's gonna throw in jail because he owes him money and all these debts and anyway it's convoluted and a bit boring but it's important to the plot so on Trotty's way back home he runs into this man with this man's daughter um the man is called Will Fern his daughter is called well adopted daughter it's actually his niece called Lillian she's nine years old and this man Will Fern is actually looking for Alderman Cute and Trotty says don't go see Alderman Cute you Will Fern I've just heard that you're going to get arrested if you go see him because you owe him money 
So this guy's like, oh my god, thank you so much for saving me, whatever. And then Trotty invites them to come stay with him. And Meg and Lillian um, bond immediately. And Trotty gives them sort of um, the only bacon that he can afford and the tea that he has and just gives them anything that he can give them. A key thing about Trotty is that he is obsessed with the bells in the church in their little town. Every day when he's running around, he like loves these bells and that's how the story starts. He's talking about the bells. So that night he starts hearing the bells calling his name. So he goes out to the church and he sees that the doors open up to the, the bells, the bell tower. So he goes up to the bell tower, he passes out, he wakes up and there's this weird description of all these goblins around him doing all of these weird things. And then the goblins actually turn into like the faces of the bells and the bells have got like faces that are like spiritual. And they basically start showing him visions of, um, he. they tell him that he's actually dead. And then they show him all of these visions of things that will happen to Richard Meg, Lillian and Will Fern um, if in the eventuality that they don't sort of believe in their self-worth almost so um, he goes through this whole thing about how um, so Meg marries Richard but then Richard becomes an alcoholic and dies and Meg's left with a, with on her own penniless with a child in this, these imaginary futures um, Will ends up in prison, Lillian turns to prostitution and um, then Trotty sees this vision of Meg about to drown herself with her child and at that point he like says that he's learnt his lesson that poor people aren't bad people and we have a life and then he can save Meg and he does and then he just wakes up at home as if nothing happened and then they celebrate Meg and Richard's wedding. I don't know if I have explained that in any way that is clear because... <laughs> I think so. It's so sounded good. It's just, it's just, it's just weird and confusing. So the whole moral message of the, and, and please do correct me because I'm not entirely sure. The whole moral message of the book is that comment society in the UK at that point obviously was very classist. So these wealthy people are looking down upon Trotty and his family and it makes them feel like they don't deserve happiness and success because they're poor and so the visions are meant to be like a self-fulfilling prophecy of if you poor people keep thinking that you're worthless because you're poor your lives will become it will be horrible so you need to like trust yourselves and work hard and believe that you can you are good people and so I think it's trying to um, erase the stereotype in Britain at the time that poor people were bad people and criminals and whatever whatever and show that actually like you know everyone is intrinsically good and uh, yeah no I agree with that I think it's um, definitely like because Trotty at the beginning is like I have no hope for us we're all born bad and then at the end he like verbatim changes it almost and is like no we are we do have good in us yeah, I think I have the actual quote if I want to be annoying about it. No, please do, because I think it's um, it's one of the th these things that I kind of understood what it was when I was reading it, but I still had to double check when I finished it, which is just like Dickens all over. Got to do like a spark note summary to understand anything he's saying. Yeah, so this is page 10, so very early on. He says, sometimes I think we must have a little, and sometimes I think we must be intruding. I get so puzzled sometimes that I'm not even able to make up my mind whether there is any good at all in us or whether we are born bad. We seem to be dreadful things. We seem to give a deal of trouble. We are always being complained of and guarded against. And then at the end, he says, let me find it. 
I see it on the flow. I know that we must trust and hope and neither doubt ourselves nor doubt the good in one another. Which is very Christmas Dickens. But also I think it's so multi-layered, but has practical applications today. So I can link this to uh, Edgar Allan Poe. I can lead it to Macbeth, Shakespeare's Macbeth. Um, I could lead it to Hunchback of Notre Dame. That was what I was going to say. The first chapter, the first, he calls it quarters because of the bell chimes or whatever. But the first quarter, I was like, is this just a copy of the Hunchback of Notre Dame? Because that's how it feels. It's like old man obsessed with One of the goblins is actually a a hunchback. A hunchback. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the goblins is a hunchback. So it reminded me of the gargoyles um, in Hunchback, of course, that like um, come to life and start talking in the Disney film. I don't know if that happens in the book because we've not read the book. I'm reading it next month. So, yes, um, <laughs> you'll have to tell us if that really happens or if it's just Disney. Um, <laughs> anyway, so it reminded me of all those things. But then let's like march forward to like right now where we're talking about like mental health issues and how self monologues um, or inner monologues when you tell yourself like you can't do things or you're worthless or you're not worth anything. And to combat that, you have to provide yourself a positive monologue of these are things I can do. These are things I can accomplish. These are um, so I thought it tied in with all kinds of old literature all kinds of classic literature but all kinds of like uh, Brene Brown if you will even literature right like like now um, if you are brought up and these are the only things that you hear in a class system or maybe just in your own home or if this is what people are saying on the street like really what the alderman cute or whatever which i think is so ironic his name is cute and he's he's such cute, a but he's jerk he's a horrible, horrible person. person um and he says to, it's appalling he says richard you're this strapping young lad who women are going to be like dancing around why would you settle for meg who's going to lose her figure in five years and have babies and you're going to have to be listening to squalling babies and then you're not going to have any money to feed the babies and why would you even enter into that with her when you can just have lots of women dancing around you all the time and she's going to be turned into a prostitute anyway because she can't afford to feed her baby and I mean I was like oh my gosh so to me it was a little bit of a Les Miserables was in here too um oh yeah this it's sort of all of that time period so I thought it was actually pretty dense the that whole sort of projection of what will happen to poor people um at this time like why do you even bother living why would you even bother trying to be happy when you're going to die and just be a menace in society anyway and then that is sort of um, so sad. counterposed right it's sort of like um contradicted or however you say that with the man who is sort of the um politician who says i'm the the father and the best friend to the poor man because i provide him some money and then he always needs to find me which is sort of this like internal sort of like uh this is going to be a political political statement but sort of like this um it reminded me, reminded me of slavery, actually, where like um, people in the like America, dependent on him. yeah, and then he would make them even more dependent, so they had no way to get out of an impoverished system, and so yes. I, this he's is capitalizing cool. on their poverty and Abs- therefore right. forcing them to continue yep. to be in poverty. So he's sort of like saying it's great that you're poor. And then complaining yeah. about them, yeah. He's, but he said, it's so great that you're poor and it's what you need is for me to tell you what to do because yeah. you don't know. So he's actually adding to the same stereotype by saying it, but then patting himself on the back. So I think like this four little chapter book is actually quite dense in what does it mean politically and what is Charles Dickens saying about how the class system works in England at this time. And to me, it was all tapping into... Um, 
the giving part of Christmas, because I think when we all, no matter what religion you are, what you, what you, um, what you celebrate during the holiday season, most of the time we're always thinking about how can we help people who need um, some donations? How can we give to other people? How can we, and to me, it was playing into sort of that same thing where, um, uh, what's his name again? The, the, uh, Trotty, Trotty, sorry. And his wife or his daughter, Megan, they're so, they were actually so generous during this particular time period when they bring the man and his niece into their home. And then he gets whatever, six farthings or whatever they are, guinea, I think. Six pence. Yeah, whatever he gets that day for his running the message and then spends it on the bacon and the whatever it is that he has. The tea I thought it was, that he gives to them. Yeah, I thought yeah. it was very sweet as far as like showing that he's really internally good, intrinsically good and wants to give to people and not and help them out because he, he feels, uh, you know, empathetic toward them. Not just sympathetic, but he understands their condition. Well, because they're also poor. But that's why I think it's like a remix of Christmas Carol because it's essentially the same message, but it's telling us the same message from the impoverished perspective rather than the rich person's perspective. Like Scrooge is wealthy and Scrooge has to learn to be more giving yeah. and kind because how of how impoverished so many people were in London or in the UK at the time whereas Trotty has to learn that being poor isn't the worst thing or you know it's not a reflection of his character because he is already intrinsically good so it's like they're still trying to teach us how to be giving and how to be empathetic and those moral messages just like through different perspectives but I must say I don't think I learned anything new about the class system through this book than I did like reading A Christmas Carol it's like equally as horrible it's like equally as tragic how poor everyone is and even in Christmas Carol like um what's the Scrooge's understudy Cratchit Bob Cratchit yes no? so and he's oh no maybe no 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 it's like a nice guy and he's got little Timothy little tiny yeah, Tim I think it's Bob 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 it's Cratchit. tiny Tim's dad yeah. and um there's a scene I remember in Christmas Carol where they're showing tiny tim's dad being really generous and giving all of his kids and his nieces and nephews food and he and his wife don't eat that day because they're trying to feed the kids so it's the same thing like it's it's the same it's the same image just from a different perspective agreed although i do think that and this book they're showing that uh or the story is a little bit different and that the poor person is believing the story about themselves and saying that about themselves, which really is contradicted because he really is a giving person. Yeah, um, it's sad. It's a lot. It is sadder. And, and, it, but it also shows that it, you don't, it doesn't matter what your class system is for you to, could be for you to have a negative opinion uh, or a stereotype of whatever class it is. Poor, I mean, it, it's, it's very stereotypic in different ways, but I thought it was interesting that the poor man was stereotyping his own class system that was an interesting thing because that's probably how it was easily perpetuated because there was no no way out they didn't you know i thought that was interesting they didn't think there was a way out right and do we do that now yeah i was gonna say i have a quote from uh what's his first name his last name's forrester john forrester yes who wrote a biography about dickens and he wrote about Dickens that he was to try and convert society as he had converted Scrooge by showing that its happiness rested on the same foundations as those of the individual, which are mercy and charity, not less than justice, which again is the same 
it's the same as a Christmas Carol. The message is the same. But I think, you know, are, would yeah. we be surprised, you know, would we expect reading this that the message would be different when it's a, a Dickens story about Christmas in his Christmas stories saga? Like, Christmas is only one thing. It's about kindness and giving and love. Like, it, it's one message lumped into an event, right? So, of course, he's going to have the same message in every story. He's just going to do it differently, right? Like, it would be weird if he wrote a story talking about, I don't know, wars and famine or plague or, you know, like, then it's like kind of a bit of a different vibe. Like, he's telling people <laughs> to be giving. Um, but, and, you know, he, it, his Christmas stories are identifiably different to his other novels then in that sense. Like, a lot of, all of his other novels are about poverty. They're about poor people in the 1800s, like 1700s, whatever. But they're not as identifiably about that moral message like when we read a tale of two cities it wasn't the same moral message it was a different moral message oh good point i didn't think about that yeah and you know yeah. you read like oliver twist it's it, it's all similar stuff but it's not that like trope of this is why like this story is about this because it's christmas you know i don't know if that makes any sense right Agreed. yeah do you think that's because they're much shorter though yeah. and it's meant to be if you if we think about it being like in the newspaper or whatever publication it was in right at the time the people are looking for a sweet story to be reading at christmas time with their family or um that would be the expectation I and mean, he's just doing maybe what it was that he was paid to do like the expectation of you know what i mean so that's a different way to the purpose uh, well yeah, yeah so apparently this so this came out in 1844 and C christmas carol was 1843 and um, apparently it was like super highly anticipated, super well received. Everyone obviously already knew Dickens and his Christmas story at that point. So they were all quite excited to read this. And then it's only sort of over the, the years of history that it's, um, it's become overshadowed by A Christmas Carol. But at the time, they were sort of equal in terms of which one was, was the most popular. That's what I read today. Yeah. Um, because, it, I mean... It is a good story. It is a nice story. I think it's just we're going into it thinking of A Christmas Carol. So it does like maybe distort our perception a bit of what it could stand as and stand as on its but own. But they would have had that same perspective because they would have read A Christmas Carol first, right? They would have. As I yeah. said that, I also thought that. Yeah. yeah, you're right. And this one was like so much more sad than A Christmas Carol. Like he's like watching his daughter and his granddaughter like walk into the river to drown themselves sorry so i didn't really get on that i didn't go into detail much with that with the plot summary but it is literally that trotty is standing there watching his daughter and grandchild who are so poor and so desperate and have lost their husband walk to a river to commit suicide and earlier on in the book trotty's reading a news article that talks about a woman that killed herself and her child and trotty's saying like that's the ultimate sin how could anyone do that like that's so that's a really marker of a bad person and then immediately goes to the bells after that and then witnesses his daughter doing the same thing and i think that's like that's quite an interesting quite an interesting thing for to show his um his how his opinion changes between thinking that how could anyone ever do that and then seeing that happen to someone that he loves and someone he's close to and alderman cute also says like he's what does he does he puts that down or people who commit suicide he has a commentary on it politically too like he's the judge or whomever if it's the cute or it's the other person that's standing with him i can't remember but whoever the judge is that's saying um, suicide he's like gonna put that down or whatever that meant I didn't know what that meant like like you're gonna put people down who like commit yeah. suicide I, like 
how can you do that if they're already dead? Like they're already <laughs> down. But anyway, he remembering that part, he says that quite a bit. But um, they are obviously making a very serious commentary on suicide. But it also reminds me of, is it Javert in um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame who does do that? Who, who commits suicide? Yeah, doesn't he go jump into the water at the end of uh, Notre Hunchback? Oh, that's in Les Miserables. Sorry. You're thinking of Les Mis. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of Les Miserables. I just realized. It's still Victor Hugo. You're very you're yeah. on you're on the right tangent there. But yeah, I can feel. But it's still the same thing with um, um, I've forgotten her name. Who the who has to? She becomes a prostitute because she can't feed her daughter in Les Mis. I thought there was a lot of the same oh, sort of thematic. Oh my gosh! No, the name is Anne on the Hathaway. Tongue. What's her name? Fantine, it's Fantine. Fantine, sorry, I can't Fantine. Don't be. You're right. There, there are very, there are a lot of similar similarities and overlapping themes and stuff. And I thought the same about the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is very exciting because that's the next book we're reading. And I didn't even think that there would be similarities between these, but there are. Um, not just about the bells. So, um, and those books were both written about ten years, ten to fifteen years before the chimes. So these things oh, were already oh, out were. in pop culture. That's what I was wondering. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about the impoverished. Okay. So there's one more sort of like, um, there's one more parallel here. And I just read the publication date is 1848. So Edgar Allan Poe, who's writing in America during this time about, you know, ghost sort of dark tales, does have a poem that is called The Bells. Um, and he's talking about these bells that are just, if you read it, I can't remember. I used to have my students count it. It would be like, he says the bells like 65 <laughs> times in this poem. And it's so cool. If you ever have, a, if you have a, you could look it up on um, YouTube and hear somebody read it. Vincent Price, I think, reads the bells and it's spectacular. Ooh, that's spooky. Um, and it's so cool. And he's talking about the goblins. And it's so funny because it's also in a quadrant. It's written in fours, just like what we just read in the chimes so he must have been inspired by this right like this wasn't like copyright it was inspiration right must have okay because he actually lived in the bottom of a church where he would hear the bells and he they would go off during emergencies he kind of traced life like they would go off during somebody's birth during somebody's wedding during a fire or an emergency and somebody's death and it was talking in the bells of edgar Allan poe he's talking about how like there's these ghosts and goblins who are in the bell tower and the big bell is sort of the master just like in the chimes where there's like the big master of the bells and they are waiting for people to die so they can add to their population it's like a joyous time for them even though it's a sad time on earth the bells are excited that the people when they die will then rise and become part of the goblins and ghosts that are in the bell tower and is that's but that's quite similar to Dickens. It's almost like as if the bells were to be more sinister. It's like Poe's taken the bells as they are and then just made them nasty instead of trying to teach a nice message. Made them selfish and sinister. Classic Poe. That's weird. <laughs> he made them just. It's it's sort of like a life cycle. He's following like these the bells ring. They're so happy when. He's talking about people too. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful poem. I actually really like it. It's really cool. Um, anyway, so he he says, you know, the bells are happy. They're ringing because of the birth. They're happy because of the marriage, and and it, he gives them different sounds. He makes them come to life, and it's a very it's a onomatopoeia, peak, onomatopoeia. Poem. Um, anyway, 
Onomatopoeic. Yeah, but I was trying to make it like an adjective. Onomatopoeic. That's what? I'm sure that's yeah. what. Yeah. We, just, we could make it up. That sounds right. Um, and then the emergencies. and um, Anyway, so he was like trying to do all those, but in, always in celebration of people dying and coming home, which I thought was... Anyway, I thought um, this in the chimes... I don't know that it was like that. It was sort of like the poor people were always coming home. They didn't even really talk about what happens when rich people no. die. But they also, I guess, like none of the the, the chimes in, in the chimes were were trying to help, though. Like they, they were trying to help by, by showing death. They were trying to help the living to stay living, which is different to Poe. Didn't they say like humanity was really... Like, the rich people were bad. Didn't the chimes say that? Like, they were saying the rich people, like, were the ones who were putting down their own poor people. I can't remember, but I wouldn't be surprised. I thought that was, that was part of their conversation in his vision or in his dream or whatever. Wait, I do have, like, a little quote I want to bring up if I can find it now. Just because I think it's... We talk about ladies a lot on this. So, here we go. Okay, so... This is the quote. It says, fine character. Very, said Mr. Filler dryly, for marrying women and murdering them. Considerably more than the average number of wives, by the by. I was like, what? We're saying this guy is a fine character for marrying women and murdering them. Right? Is that what that's saying? At the, at the end, right? Yeah, like he was, he was, they were kind of talking about him as a character who marries more often than others, but does kill his wives. Um <laughs> Very okay, Bluebeard. Very, very Bluebeard, Bluebeard, but also I about Bluebeard. very, very much... Bluebeard. What a good story. Yeah, very mm. Bluebeard. Mm-hmm. It was a good story. It's a great story. Um, also, ooh, we should do a Bluebeard story sometime. Anyway, okay, so also, um, we, we've talked about this in Dickens before, how he doesn't write about women. He doesn't, like, use their voice. He doesn't speak about them, except always in the way of a prostitute or, like, expendable people like creatures he doesn't even they they don't even have they have no value um so it's just fit in with that to me it doesn't matter what class system you are it didn't it they're like expendable but in this story we do have we do have meg who who speaks a fair bit and is so important to the story because she's so important to the main character like she's far more present than and it's like when we were reading A Tale of Two Cities, like the women were always so fundamentally flawed and in a way that sort of made them real, but also made them like not nice characters. Like Dickens wasn't being like, oh, women are lovely. But Meg is like a nice person in this story, which is quite different to the women that we normally see in Dickens. They're always flawed somehow or they're dead or they die or they're prostitutes. Or But Meg is just a really nice poor person. Yeah, but she's like a symbol for Trotty to like learn his value. It's why he does. She is the catalyst for him to yeah. to sort of appreciate where he's at. It was also connected to like it's a very small detail, but in the beginning, um, like when he doesn't allow Meg, who's his daughter, Trotty doesn't, uh, to marry Richard, even though they love each other and they're like, Well, if Wazans are poor, we might as well marry each other and be poor together and experience whatever and then in his vision, um, Meg and Richard do not get married at first, not until after Richard is alcoholic and Meg sort of like reaches out to him and, 
and sort of saves him um, in that. So even in that, she's actually a good person, but it's sort of after the fact and he realizes that he could have prevented the whole thing by allowing them to marry in the first place instead of prolonging it. I thought that was part of the lesson too, that like at least if you're going to be poor, you should be happy with your mate or whomever you're with. I thought that was part of the lesson also. Sorry, it was Lillian that ends up resorting to prostitution, not Meg. Meg just becomes the single mother, but Lillian, the young girl, if 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 she didn't change, if Trotty and everyone didn't change their minds, she was going to become a prostitute, which means that she would have become the sort of woman that is like so quintessential in a Dickens story. Sorry, backtrack. Right, yeah. and that was the Fern Fern guy, Will Fern's niece. niece, yeah, who he rescues right somehow from his sister who dies or something yeah they it's it went sort of i mean this is again so classic dickens like the orphanage and the the workhouses and so i as far as i understood it from the what i read the girl was in one of these houses after her parents died and they were going to look after her and then will fun took her from one of those houses because he thought that she'd be better off with him than she would be in a workhouse or a poor house or um or an orphanage or whatever and so that's how he ended up with her and also I thought it was really sweet that whole scene where Trotty's you know feeding them and and making them tea and stuff and Will Fern is so overcome with emotion that like he couldn't get up and there's a scene where he's just sitting there and Trotty has to hold his hand and take him with him and I was it was just so sweet and I don't remember feeling like that much sentiment in other Dickens things that I've read I don't remember feeling like like so um it was so tender. I think um, I, I agree with you. I think it's really set in opposition to the words because he says them over and over, like at least five times. Like pe- uh, the poor people are like worthless. The poor people are whatever. It's sort of maybe absolutely in contrast to him saying that about himself. Or it, he, the, Dickens is really showing how kind, generous, empathetic, sympathetic, and um, sort of humanitarian they are to one another which I think it was a great way to end I loved that they ended it that way I thought that was really beautiful because it was a true act of kindness mm. uh, guys and can we talk quickly about the goblins I mean where have goblins come into Christmas and this isn't the only goblin story of Dickens either um there's another one uh, the uh, the one about the travelers has goblins and there's another one with goblins too and I don't think they're goblins in the way we think about them now as like little troll people that I think they're more like mystical things but it's like why does he call them goblins I don't know what's the difference what's the difference between a goblin and a ghost I have no idea I I just find I just found it so weird I was like why would he put goblins into a Christmas story (laughs) The ghosts are weird enough. Why are we talking about goblins now? <laughs> so are goblins supposed to be, like, sinister? I don't know. I'm asking. I don't know, because they know. were almost, like, f- like f- not friendly, but they were helpful. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It, I, I thought they were just ghosts, to be honest. I was like, oh, okay, these are ghosts that we're just calling goblins right now. And that whole scene, actually, when he's in the bell tower and he's and he's woken up and everything's like moving really quickly and the goblins are there and then they disappear into the floorboards and then the figures come. It was quite a... I did quite enjoy the description of, like, I can see it in my head of him just standing in the middle of this bell tower and, like, all these crazy mystical things happening around him. 
I did quite enjoy the description of it. Yeah. Now my mind is just like, what's the significance of having like goblins in a church? Because that feels weird to me a little bit. Yeah. What do you th- What do you think if, you know, because it's Christmas and we're talking about Christmas, this is just something I'm going to throw out. What do you guys think about like, because he's trying to, like, well, we know he does, right? He sort of secularizes Christmas um, in a different way and sort of pulls, makes it so that it actually does more than that. He makes it so that all religions can celebrate at this time period, which is actually way more significant than secularizing the holiday. He like makes it so that everybody can come together regardless of religion during the holiday season, which is tremendous. Um, so what do you think about maybe just, I don't know, because I don't know, um, I unfortunately only know about um, maybe Christianity and some Judaism. So what if he's sort of like playing on Christ's birth Christ comes in and then the opposition are like angels and then the underworld of ghouls and he's playing on sort of the evil and you know good and evil sort of parts of that faith I don't know maybe that's just way out there Michelle I don't think you're wrong but I I do wonder like what the perception of like ghosts and goblins and ghouls were like at that time because like now I've just got I immediately go to Halloween and like scary things and I don't know if it was true for them that they thought of him as scary slash demonic or whatever you know no it's something is is, you know when you've got a memory in the back of your head I Uh have a memory somewhere about someone's talking about how um, these sorts of mystical creatures only became scary like later on in the century like they weren't these um, people thought about ghosts and stuff as as not scary things but something to help them and um comforting comforting things like guiding comforting creatures like fairies and stuff i hate to bring in disney again because i'm so bad at (laughs) eastern history i'm so i don't know anything about it um although i i do know mulan and so the ancestors right in um sort of asian traditions are always helping the, yeah. their descendants and so I wonder if it's tapping into that and most really? cultures in South Africa you know they, they pray to their ancestors you, there's no one else looking after you apart from your family members that will pass and they have a vested interest in making sure that their family are happy and healthy and succeed in life and so you pray to your grandma or your great grandparents or everyone that came before them yeah and it's never a horrible thing it's like a really nice like I think western culture has has made the thought of ghosts scary popular media western and recent modern western culture but before I think they weren't fearful at all but then like portrait of a lady was scary is that what that no that's the not that the other Henry James we read oh the turn of the screw yeah, they were scary in that. The like, yeah, but that was like eighteen seventy, eighteen eighty. Okay, okay, okay. So it could have been at some point in that the century. change. If we're thinking about Dickens bringing all traditions sort of together at this time, if he's also bringing an Eastern tradition of like, or, or a South African tradition of people who are including their ancestors during because of Christmas time is a family time where people are all kind of coming back together. That would be an interesting, um, interesting research topic of when did that happen? And he's bringing it all together. Mm, but none of the ghosts in Dickens are ancestors. None of them 
uh, identified as being relatives they're always just like these like abstract weird looking people or goblins that are like little little people or hunchbacks or whatever um so i I just had this thought was i was just thinking of frozen where all those little rocks are the trolls when I, when he was talking about the goblins, the first thing I saw was those little rocks in Frozen, and when they're singing and the way they were, Dickens was describing them, yes, that they're like jumping around the bells <laughs> and like having a dance, and obviously all I was thinking about was like the little the little Frozen goblins. That are just, oh, maybe like, you put that into time. my head because right then when I was thinking about that, I'm like, this is like a conversation <laughs> about Disney, but Di- Disney really does capitalize on all of those things, right? <laughs> Uses. Um, all of those things for oh, us does, to put yeah. images in our heads and then we yeah. uh, we just resort to Disney rather than, I don't know, maybe looking back at the real thing. The books where they came. <laughs> yeah. But as per usual, I feel like we've read this book and now we've got like a million more questions. But I'm still feeling very strongly about the fact that this is not a Christmas story to me. Like, I'm not going to read this at Christmas and feel good and festive. No. Can I ask a question then? What do you read at Christmas? Do you guys read a Christmas Carol? A Christmas Carol. You do read, okay. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I just do like it now. Oh. Yeah, because that's a, but that's a Christmas story, and even um like because a Christmas Carol introduces the dinners, the mistletoe, the, the snow, the, the you know all all the moral stuff we spoke about earlier, but all the other stuff as well, like the the socks around the fire. I don't know if that's true that one, but you know like. You get what I mean. He makes Christmas in that book. And in this one, he's, like, not making anything. Was he trying to make New Year's? Was he trying to, like, Maybe. do what he did for Christmas to New Year's? I don't know. It didn't work. I don't really get it. It didn't work. There was no, like, parties. Getting married on New Year's is a pretty big deal, I think. That's true. Like, if you have a New Year's Eve wedding and then people come. I know several people who've done that. And you want to start the really? New Year out. Yeah, because I mean, everybody comes and it's a party. And you can always have a party every year on your anniversary, right? Um, oh, that's and, a good idea. Isn't, that, isn't it smart? I think it's really brilliant when people do that. Brilliant idea. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And fun. <laughs> Grace Great. is like, oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> Unless there's a falling out later, and then that's probably not that great. <laughs> Sorry. It's the worst day of your life for the rest of your yeah. life. <laughs> or else you just, you know, move along. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so I agree. It's, I don't think it's uh, – it doesn't feel like a Christmas story. Although I don't know anything about ghosts. Ghosts are not part of my Christmas tradition. I don't know about yours, but only the Chris of Christmas past – and present and future we know that they were part of of a victorian christmas tradition but even so i'm not convinced although i do just want to highlight that the book that i have of dickens christmas stories has five other christmas stories and these aren't even all of them because i have another copy of a christmas carol that has four other different dickens christmas stories so there must be like at least 10 overall and that's another question I have, and I didn't research it. How many was he writing a year? The Chimes is the second one. So then did he write like four in the same year? And what are the other ones about now? Are they all about New Year's? Are they all about Christmas? I have so right. many questions. Right. I have a whole set of Dickens, but they're in storage. So I could like look in the set of Dickens. But um, anyway, and they're like from the 1900s. They were like the first edition in America. But um, anyway, those so are going to be have... worth so much money. <laughs> well, yeah, they're in some storage room at the moment, not worth anything. Probably some like. At know... least they're safe and away from the sun and kept safe and not damaging. Sort of, unless fine. there's a fire. Right? Unless there's a <laughs> well, fire. Well, don't say that. Let's touch wood. No fires, thank you. But I must say, after this, I'm kind of over Dickens. Are you over now. it? <laughs> I love Dickens. 
Hannah's like, yes, thank God. I love Dickens. Why do you not like him, Hannah? Uh, I don't, he's just like very wordy. I don't mind him. I just don't think he's like as cracked up to be. He is all that he's cracked up to be. That's just my opinion. But like some people th- say the same thing about Jane Austen and I mm, disagree. So it's That's okay, fair. you know, no accounting for taste. Mm. I love Dickens and Jane Austen equally. <laughs> I just think that next year we need to find a Christmas story that is not Dickens. And we did look, but we couldn't find one that was Let's as read the Edith popular. Wharton one next year. We could read the ghost story by Edith Wharton. We could do that and I we could and, and we then we could. could answer our own questions about the whole ghost story tradition and what's going on. She's either writing at the same time. Let me look that up really quick. Maybe maybe not. I think she's late eighteen hundreds. So she's at the same like very oh, late. after after him. So maybe we'll have to research the whole ghost thing. Well, no, I, what I want to know now is, is before Dickens, was anyone writing about Christmas and ghosts in the same way? And who was it? And where did it come from? And what were they saying? That's where I'm, right. I'm like, in the 1700s, surely there was someone writing about Christmas that isn't Dickens. Because like, this was Maybe. great. I'm glad I read it. I enjoyed the story. Didn't think Chris, it was Christmassy. I don't feel festive after reading it, but I've got lots of questions <laughs> now. <laughs> you don't feel festive after reading. Not at all. <laughs> Okay, Edith Wharton is writing, uh, eight, she's born 1862 to 1937, so she's probably after Dickens, or at least during, right? She's during that time period, so again, we don't know which came first, not the ghost story or the Dickens, we don't know. <gasps> because you remember, do you, have you heard that saying, we could scare the Dickens out of you? Have you ever heard that? Yes. Yes. Why does that exist? <gasps> I just realized that. Because it's he's telling ghost stories. But what? But did okay. Here's another question: Did Dickens ever tell ghost stories not around Christmas? Were ghosts in any of his stories outside of the Christmas saga? Because I don't think they were. I don't know. I think they were not only in, in the Christmas novels stories. that I've read. No, not in any of the novels of Dickens that we've read. There's no ghosts in any of that stuff. That's just like historical Europe. I just don't feel like we're ending this on a very Christmassy note. I'm just like bloody chimes you didn't give me what i wanted i'm just feeling like oh so next year we'll find another christmas story that's not dickens to read it literally says christmas stories on my on the cover of my book and then it's a story about new year's i'm not impressed yeah because the story had Um, nothing to do with christmas (laughs) false advertising dickens really false advertising yeah i mean what's your key takeaway hannah from this um i think that uh, he's went downhill in his Christmas stories. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, obviously, I think it's right to be charitable and to be kind to people and to not believe the, like, negative nonsense that society is spewing just because rich people are saying it, I guess, is what I'm going to go with. And, like, the moral message is actually it's, like, it's very sweet and it's very uplifting. Yeah. You know, like, don't let external judgments make you feel like you are unworthy or make you feel like you can't trailblaze or set the path of your own future that you want to create like that's a really sweet yeah amazing message I just am disappointed that it was framed under Christmas if it was framed under anything else I would have been like this is such a lovely wonderful story but it almost does feel like a fairy tale it does very much so I remember when we did that class and it was like all the fairy tales no matter where they're from in the world the the overlapping feature is this like end moral message and this book is so mm-hmm. um so righteous with that so I think it, it reads more like a fairy tale and I wouldn't be so upset if it was just a, a Dickens fairy tale rather than a Christmas story yeah it's not a Christmas story <laughs> mm. and Michelle what were your what's your key takeaway 
I think really that it's just that Dickens, great authors, maybe you don't consider him a great author or somebody who's thought of, classic authors always borrow from other themes, previous themes, what's going on sort of in maybe popular fiction or what's going on historically, and they sort of borrow from each other to enhance their own stories. And I don't think you know that until you have read some of those stories, like the great stories, which is why they're great. You know, it's like it was very easy to connect like five or six different authors to this particular story, either previous or afterwards. And how I actually really like that about literature because it's sort of this like internal conversation that they're having um, and where they can discuss I the politics that. of class system where they can discuss should we be giving during the holiday season but they're not really talking about it together like in an interview on television because of course they don't have that but that they are still having that same conversation trying to sort of understand what is morality and how do we help people who are in need i really like that about dick that's actually what i love about dickens that i feel like he's still doing that even in this regardless if it's a christmas story or not mm -hmm, definitely. i love that he's not but yeah <laughs> I, yeah but i mean i love that he still wants to yes. he wants to ask what is the what is your job what is our job in giving to others even if you're even if you are a poor person what is it what is your responsibility in that that is my favorite thing about dickens it's why i love him so it's it fit that for me and this is a good actually a good um short version of that yes. for him like usually yes, yes, they're yes. far more long and convoluted this is a really good concise version of that Agreed. exact thing that's what i love i so i like that's what i took away and that's what i like about it and i still love it and i like dickens even more than i did before <laughs> now i feel bad that i don't like him but he's just not my favorite it's not that i don't like him it's okay You're that you don't to not like him you know what I had to read American notes in one of my courses, and I think that's just what killed him for me. So just stay away from American notes. What did you read? American what? American notes. It's like his journal about his travels in America, and it was so boring and so long-winded. Oh, that sounds awful. I've never even heard oh of God. that, and I liked it again. No, I mean, yeah, it's like, who made you do that? That um, sounds awful. It was in my, my <laughs> first semester at Edinburgh, whatever my elective course wise oh you did yeah. that horrible class it was terrible it just ruined dickens for me it That's really fair. did oh dear the class was good but that was awful i i'm happy that our <laughs> our next book is also about bells similar tangent very different um and ghosts and, and ghosts <laughs> sort of yeah sort of actually it is yeah um the hunchback of notre dame by victor hugo is first of feb we'll be releasing that episode or the first first week of feb um and i love this book like I love this book I'm already a third of the way through and I'm loving this book so I'm so excited for you guys to read it and it's good because it's really long so you get the Christmas <laughs> holidays to read it and like the start of Jan and then I, I like we're gonna have to spend like five million hours talking about it because it, I love it it's amazing it's amazing I'm excited for so, it. So I've never read it. it, and I'm so happy to have the opportunity to read it. Thank you, Grace. And it's, I think it's going to be a good book to read over Christmas, too. Yeah. Like, you agreed. can really get your yeah. teeth sunk into it when you've had your Christmas dinner, roast dinner, and you're full, <laughs> and you can sit on the couch to read your Hunchback of Notre Dame in front of the fireplace. I'll be on the beach. You'll be in front of the fireplace. Will. I will be. <laughs> but, um, well, guys... It's. I should be saying Happy New Year because this has not been Christmassy in the slightest. But Merry Christmas, 
Yeah. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Christmas. Have fun celebrations. Happy holidays. Thank you, you two. Have fun on the beach. Yes. Enjoy your trip. Thanks. And you guys as well. <laughs> have with your families. It'll be so nice. Send me pictures of the roast dinner that you're going to have. Yeah, I will do. Tell me if you pick turkey or ham. <laughs> But anyway, well then, everyone that's listening, have a happy holiday festive season. I hope everyone gets to relax and has nice dinners on their Christmas days. And um, yeah, we'll chat to you into the new year, 2022. That's so scary. It is. so so Um, bizarre. Exciting, though. But in the meantime, yeah, just follow us on Instagram, that book, Bosom Podcast. And we will chat to you in the new year. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.